BIOS is not cable. We're wired differently, which means you can get the fastest internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to files today to get our best offer ever. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine on yet another Wednesday night. In this busy world, I know you have lots to choose from to occupy your time and things to do. Uh, so it is honestly uh, and truly an honor when you take the time to be here with me and my wonderful guests. So thank you. And I hope you're enjoying the summer. Uh, I know with everything going on out there in the world, it can be ugly out there. But, you know, we have to look for inspiration we have to seek out those glimmers that give us hope and, um, you know, just keep that gas in our tank. Uh, even if it means something simple like uh, making the time to, you know, carve out to soak in a wonderful bath with some scented candles. Uh, maybe it's petting our beloved cat and just hearing that, that uh, calming purr. Or um, when was the last time you stopped and really looked at the beauty and intricacy of a flower in your garden or maybe your neighbor's garden or at the grocery store? You know, maybe it's looking for those around us who are trying to make a difference, whatever that is, and giving them a shout or an email or uh, maybe mailing them a card to say thank you. You know, that uh, reminds me of an exercise we were doing in the final Cakes for the Queen of Heaven class this past uh, Saturday that I was teaching at the Goddess Temple uh, in Orange County on feminist theology. The exercise um, that was called for in the curriculum was to have women imagine a day in their future when their community was gathered to give them accolades for something they accomplished. Well, you know, I didn't expect um, this to be what happened uh, as a result of that exercise, but it turned out it was really hard for some of the women to create that vision, that dream, that fantasy in their mind. Uh, maybe that was because we women so often are used to enduring, uh, to being of service, uh, for what we do for others, sometimes being taken for granted. So let me just suggest that um, as we do what we can to um, rethink and restructure our society with new and more meaningful values, let's make one of our ideals to create rituals, not only that honor important life passages, <clears throat> you know, our body, sexuality, uh, and our sacred blood, but let's regularly give accolades to the women and men in our lives that deserve recognition. Um, you know, if uh, there's someone around you that's doing good work, tell them. You know, don't assume they get enough appreciation or recognition or, or any at all. You know, we should get in the habit of doing that. We sh and we shouldn't have trouble imagining success and receiving support and acknowledgement. You know, we should just take it in, receive it, let it fuel us, let it grow us, and let it make us more healthy and whole. So anyway, just some food for thought that uh, came out of that uh, class exercise. 
So that's my inspiration for this week. And the rest I'll have to leave to our wonderful guests. And we have two for you tonight, for your pleasure, uh, as we celebrate uh, our summer series, uh, Sacred Destinations. The first guest tonight um, coming on with us for about an hour is Lydia Rule. She is a favorite returning. And uh, she is going to be talking to us about uh, the goddess Kuan Yin in Asia. And uh, then at about 7 o'clock, we have the author Gloria Amendola coming on the show. And um, the topic we'll be discussing with Gloria is the Magdalene energies in the lands of southern France. So I think we have two great shows for you tonight. I hope you'll stay tuned in for the entire show. So let's uh, get right to Lydia. And uh, if uh, by chance this is the first time uh, you're hearing Lydia, uh, let me tell you a little bit about her just as uh, by way of an introduction. She is an artist-scholar emeritus of the visual arts faculty of the University of Northern California in Greeley, Colorado. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Colorado at Boulder, a Master of Arts from UNC, and she studied uh, with Syracuse University in Italy, France, Spain, and with the Art Institute of Chicago in Indonesia. She works regularly at um, Santa Reparata International School of Art in Florence, Italy, and Columbia College Center uh, for Book and Paper in Chicago. Her research into sacred images of women has taken her around the globe, so that's why she is a great guest to talk to us about Kuan Yin in Asia, because this is a lady who has been everywhere. For seven years, Lydia led women's pilgrimage journeys to sacred places. She creates and exhibits her art and does workshops throughout the U.S. and internationally. And her goddess icon spirit banners, please Google that. Uh, Maybe you can look at that while you're uh, listening to our interview tonight. Goddess icon spirit banners or or, uh, LydiaRule.com. Uh, they uh, these beautiful uh, uh, girls of Lydia's uh, ambassadors of goddess or the sacred feminine I like to call them. Well, they have flown in uh, prestigious places all around the world, uh, in countries like Australia, Canada, Britain, France, Luxembourg, Italy, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, Germany, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Turkey, Ghana, Kenya, Costa Rica. I could go on and on, and the list continues. Um, they they really do spread the divine feminine energies uh, in a way that art only can. And she has a book out about these goddess icon spirit banners of that very same name, goddess icon spirit banners of the divine feminine. So please look it up while we talk. And Lydia, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Karen, for inviting me back. I enjoy it immensely. Well, good, good, and and I always enjoy talking to you. You always teach me something new, and uh, you're just back from another of your many, many trips. Were you uh, doing goddess-oriented work, or was it? Uh, what, what was your last trip that you're only home a couple days from? Well, I started in um, Italy, in Rome, with my entire family of 14, so that was quite a a journey uh, <laughs> to celebrate my 75th birthday, which is next week on August 4th. Oh, the and same day as Barack Obama, right? That's right. And our son, Steve, was also born on my birthday. So we were celebrating, and my husband, Bob, was 75 in April. So the journey to Italy was in birthday celebrations, and we followed the goddesses there. Then I did a uh, goddess Anatolia, the 20th anniversary of the 
my first journey there on the trail of the Mother Goddess with Rashid Ergener. Following that, I went to Bavaria to uh, the Hagia Academy uh, and was involved last week in studying matriarchal studies in the cultures of the world. So it's been quite a, a span. You're not <laughs> kidding. <laughs> well, and, well, and let me. And before we move on to other things, I want to make sure I take a second here and say happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Lydia, I, I have to ask you, just as you know, a traveler myself, uh, who sometimes becomes weary of the grind of the airports and the getting up early and being on the bus and all of that sort of thing. You, you know, you probably did this a little differently with family, and you know, by your description of the trip, it wasn't like you were with a tour per se. But do you ever ever get weary of the travel, or does it still just inspire you like in those early days? Well, I enjoy it. There's no doubt about that. But as I, um, it, I was glad to get home. <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> After a month being gone, it is um, uh, a grind. It isn't a grind. I just missed my own bed and uh, <laughs> and my own peace and quiet. Uh, <laughs> The family is always busy, and then the tour of Turkey, we covered an awfully lot of territory. And then we spent the week in Bavaria, and that was with a group of about 20 women. So my peace and quiet was very nice today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I just have to ask you as a funny aside, uh, when you get home, do you always crave a particular food that you just can't get uh, over in Europe (laughs) or somewhere? Yes, and that's Mexican food. In Colorado, that's what I really uh, love here, and they cannot do Mexican in Europe. Well, you know, I don't know if you heard that gasp, but that's exactly the thing I always crave, too. As soon as we get home, we have to hit a good Mexican restaurant, because you're right, you just can't get good Mexican food over in Europe. Um, they can't. They can't do the taste. Um, I, I remember my first trip to Egypt. We stayed at a Sheraton, and they were having a Mexican fiesta. Let me tell you, <laughs> it, it, it was not good. <laughs> well, but anyway, let's let's uh, go ahead and and move on to Kuan Yin in Asia. And just on the off chance that uh, no one, not no one, but some of my maybe new listeners uh, maybe don't know about the Asian goddess Kuan Yin. Why don't you start off by, you know, telling us who she is and uh, some of her histories? Well. Um, I got interested in China and the goddesses there as part of my goddess banner family, which I affectionately call the girls, and you referred to them. So I was going to China in the early, uh, 2003, and I began looking at images seriously about what I would choose. And I discovered that, that Kuan Yin was such a, an important image. When I started researching, I realized that she kind of developed and evolved from uh, the Buddhist idea of a bodhisattva of compassion whose name was Avilokiteshwara. So you'll have some mouthfuls to this on this show tonight. <laughs> um, Buddhism was happened, you know, 500 years before the advent of the common era or Christ, and then it traveled on uh, the trader's routes. So there literally was a road from China to the Mediterranean, uh, to the Roman world. And on that road, traders brought their uh, goods, 
and also their images. So the first images of Kuan Yin appeared in caves in uh, western China uh, around, um, they are called the Magao Caves near Dunhuang. And it's out in the Kukakumakan Desert. Uh, what traders would do, I gather, is m- make some images to make sure that they were safe, that oh. they, uh, their travels would go safely, and if that happened, then they would return and make more images. So Quan Yin appeared on some banners or flags, silk flags there, uh, to protect uh, the, the people. And uh, so that's where she first began uh, to appear, or the the male bodhisattva became feminine. So, um, Lydia, how did that come to be? Because we know Buddhism is so patriarchal. Do you find it surprising that we end up with a female bodhisattva? Well, um, no, because that seems to be what's happened even in, especially in Christianity. Uh, Oh, that's true, with Mary. Yeah, that the patriarchal religions can't get along without some kind of a feminine energy and uh, spirit. And so Kuan Yin, in essence, becomes the Mary of Chinese Buddhism, not uh, India Buddhism, but Chinese Buddhism. And then, as you know, Buddhism kind of died out in India in around the 12th century Christ, uh, common era, and it moved into... Um, Southeast Asia into Cambodia, and uh, so there you found uh, the the bringing of that idea and some wonderful feminine divine images there uh, in Angkor Wat. So the idea that you had to have a feminine spirit or a feminine uh, divine human beings crave it appears <laughs> to me. Okay. Now, are you saying in, um, oh, um, I'm sorry, you just, it just went right out of my head, the destination you just said. The, where well, I was talking about Cambodia, but, Cambodia. but what happens uh, with Kuan Yin, or a feminine spirit, uh, feminine divine, she's all over Asia, and uh, she gets a different name in Southeast Asia, so maybe we ought to just stick with China for a little bit, and then okay. we can move down there. Okay. Um, so the Chinese uh, appear to have been receptive and needing some uh, image, an idea with which to ask for help. And so Quan Yin's uh, title is She Who Listens to the Cries of the World or Hears the Cries of the World. So if you want something, uh, help for healing, help for a good life, a good death, help for your uh, safe travels, you would uh, make an offering to her. And offerings mean sometimes food, sometimes um, incense, uh, sometimes banners, sometimes spirit money. You know, in in Chinese temples, uh, there are uh, papers that are uh, used as spirit money that you um, uh, transform by burning uh, and at Kuan Yin Shrines, that's very prevalent. I mean, that's what you do when you enter. You you get a candle or a taper and uh, some incense, and you light it and put it on the altars. And you can also then get spirit money and, 
and uh, burn it as well. So is the idea as you burn the money, you're asking for abundance to come to you? Yes, or healing or safety or uh, I suppose you could even ask for uh, a lover. <laughs> I don't know. But it's a request to she who listens to the cries of the world, and especially you. Uh, there seems to be a real personal relationship with a Kuan Yin. Um, she's the figure that's on home altars. She's the figure in the uh, temples where the the ashes of the dead are. Uh, she's the she's the person, or she's the feminine divine. She's the great goddess. Okay. Uh, uh, she also is represented in the landscape as a mountain, and her, her sacred mountain is in the East China Sea. Uh, it's called Putuoshan. I visited there in 2003, along with thousands and thousands of other pilgrims. You have to take a, a boat from the mainland of China, uh, Dingbo, out into the uh, to the island, and I think it's about four hours on the on the boat ferry. Uh, and I was told that there are at least four to six million pilgrims a year going to uh, Putuoshan, which is her sacred island, and a mountain on it where uh, you request uh, your help from her or if you've been healed you say thank you uh, the stories are endless about how she has affected people's lives well I know when we did um, a military ritual um, in the summer uh, Kuan Yin was the goddess that uh, that we used as uh, you know for healing of you know, of the soldiers, of people left behind. Mm -hmm. And there were all sorts of stories of, uh, you know, people said that, uh, you know, they believed that they prayed to her and, you know, she would save them from exploding bombs. I mean, her stories really uh, really are countless. Yes, they are. And um, so she becomes this um, great mother that you are um, uh, wanting to be in her presence or she in your presence to help you. Well, you know, I have a curious question for you, and I'm just wondering if what your, you know, what your gut reaction is. Um, I had an ISIS scholar say to me uh, that she thought that ISIS and Kuan Yin may have been related, that Kuan Yin, uh, you know, attributes and everything may have come from, you know, this, like you, you were talking about that Silk Road, you know, from China, you know, down into the Mediterranean area. We know ISIS was worshipped there. Do you really think there's there's maybe any connection there? Well, if she sees one, maybe she can research it. Uh, from what I've read, she seems to have arisen from the Buddhist tradition, which really didn't come from Egypt. And yeah. uh, then, the, then China itself had has other many other layers preceding Buddhism and Kuan Yin. Um, it's uh, there was during the Han Dynasty, um, and this is several years before the several hundred years before the Common Era, and about the same time that Buddhism arose. Um, there was a great Queen Mother of the West. Her name was Shi Wang Mu, and you wanted to like in Egypt in a way. 
you go to the great western mountains, your souls go there uh, when you die. So uh, she was on many tombs and on many tiles, uh, seated on her throne uh, and with her sacred animals around her. So she was part of the tradition before Kuan Yin. Okay. And, uh, then there, there's other great mothers. Do Mu was a Taoist goddess who was has the sun and the moon in her many arms. Uh, and she, again, is, is that great mother. Uh, so uh, they are all related in my mind because of their um, connections to my goddess uh, banner tradition circling the world. It seems there are many great mothers, and Isis certainly is one. So uh, tell us. Think, a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You you were. I don't see her getting to China per se. But yeah, you know, I, I, what, I, what's interesting, it seems, is that when the Virgin Mary was such a strong uh, occurrence in the uh, Middle Ages, 12th to the 14th century. There seems to be a rise in Kuan Yin. In fact, that's the first time that she's shown with a child. Hmm. Uh, so uh, up until then, she, she's alone. But around the 12th century, she uh, has a son on her lap. Hmm. And so um, it probably was the influence of the traders again right. um, bringing the stories, either on the Silk Road or on the oceans. And was this child on her lap actually, I mean, I heard you say son, but did you, mm-hmm. I mean, do did, did the stories change where she actually has uh, a male child? No. She she is who you appeal to for a son. Ah. So she's called Kuan Yin, uh, white-robed Kuan Yin, who uh, brings a son. And in the Oriental traditions, the son is the... Uh, person that you always want to bring into the world. I, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not praying for girls, is your point? Yeah, right. <laughs> I would hope you'd pray for girls so you, your life continued. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they say with all the uh, in, uh, infanticide in uh, China, there's actually a shortage of girls. I believe oh, I read that, someplace. In the on the cover of the Economist magazine in January or February this year, it said there's really it's a genocide. For uh, at least 50 million girls have either uh, not been born, uh, and this is going to cause a tremendous imbalance in the population. Wow! Because if you don't have women um, for men, uh, it causes all kinds of social issues. That I could go on and on. Well, well, let's uh, you know getting back to Kuan Yin. Although that is very interesting, and it amazes me that uh, it isn't talked about more in in our country. It's like uh, it, they just as well be on another planet with that problem. Um, and, and it is so important to us, you know, within goddess spirituality, because again, you know, this is the the oppression of women in patriarchal male dominated world. You know, that, that's just one of the symptoms. Um, But uh, but Kuan Yin, she's depicted a lot of different ways, true? Yes. So she can be um, standing uh, with uh, and often holding a willow and a vessel of water symbolizing new life and that everything has to have water to live. 
so she's the source of, of water, and her sacred island is in the middle of the ocean, East China Sea, another uh, symbol of water. Uh, she could be seated on her mountain, uh, much like Tara is seated on a lotus, but she's seated on a mountain that's called a potalaka, and there was a particularly wonderful image of her seated at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City. Uh, she's called a water and moon Kuan Yin there. Uh, and sadly, like many other um, countries, we've taken objects from their homes and brought them here. Uh, and in the case of the Nelson Atkins, they, they brought a total temple so she wow. sits in a, in a temple. It's quite dramatic. Now, where is this, Lydia? In Kansas City. Okay. At the Nelson Atkins Museum. Um, wow. And then she can be depicted um, holding a wheel, kind of like the wheel of life. Uh, and this new huge statue of her on her island was put up for the millennium in uh, 1999-2000, and she has a huge wheel like you would see on a ship that she's holding, and, and she's facing uh, the the South China Sea. So her name there is Nantai Kuan Yin. And is that her connection with sailors maybe or, yes. or just travelers? Travelers and sailors. Uh, she was carried up and down uh, the coast of Asia, um, so the the routes were both water and land that she moved on. Uh, that particular story on her sacred island is that, that uh, a ship was wrecked, and then they tried to get back onto the ship, and she helped them then uh, on their voyage as it went on. And so there's a cave where she supposedly spoke to them. Uh, and right at that spot is where they built a temple. So uh, you can hear the water rushing in and out of that cave that kind of moans just because mm-hmm. of the tides. Mm-hmm. So you can see how uh, the natural environment would give you some sound. Yes, <laughs> yes. Perhaps and, reinforce and that idea. That I, yeah, those auditory uh, spiritual experiences. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And mountains, too, are... are Often seen as the mother, you know, Mother Mountain. You, they're they're all over the world. I just came from Bavaria, where many of the mountains have Mary churches on the top. <laughs> so, 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 do you have a favorite Kuan Yin, Lydia? I mean, I know you've seen them, seen her in so many places. Is there one that stands out for you? Well, I love that one in Kansas City. I think she's pretty special. Okay, uh, and she's on our shores, so you don't have to go to China to see her. Well, when we get off, I'm going to Google her and see if I can put her on my Facebook page. <laughs> oh, well, that'd be good. Or I can even send you a PDF of the one that I made a banner of. Okay, okay. So, um, so, so, was there more you wanted to tell us about Kuan Yin in China, or did you want to go down to Cambodia? Well, um, I think that what the important idea is that she traveled. And because she was protecting those who traveled. Uh, she was also seen to work miracles. Her, her stories just go on and on. There's several fabulous books about her, uh, heavily researched, that went into the early texts about her, the sutras, 
uh, and uses some of the illustrations I've been describing. And then just the, the folk knowledge, you know, as all uh, studies of goddesses, uh, of the, the stories that people pass on uh, as folk knowledge and tradition are very, very important to research and try to make the connections to the, in quotes, higher learning or the book knowledge. So uh, that's really important as far as Kuan Yin is concerned. Now, does she have a lot of apparitions attached to her stories? Is yes. that usually part of it? Yes, she does. Yes, she does. She will um, show up on the ocean, quiet the storms. She would. Uh, one story was that uh, they were a family was to get on a boat at, 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 right after the Second World War. And the grandmother said no because Kuan Yin stood on the water and told her no. They didn't get on, and that ship was ran into some uh, Japanese torpedoes, and everyone was lost. So the grandmother said that Kuan Yin saved them. Mm. Uh, and she saved the sailors. She saved uh, people from cancer. The stories are going on and on. Much as the miracles of Mary or uh, the uh, miracles, traditions of healing uh, worldwide. You, you Does, is there a book that stands help. out for you that if people wanted to hear about her, uh, read about her miracles, one that is your favorite? Well, the one that's the biggest one, I'm here looking at it, it's about an inch thick, is really called Kuan Yin, The Chinese Transformation of Avalokiteshwara which is the Buddhist uh, bodhisattva in Buddhism. Uh, and it's by a Chinese author, C-H-U-N-F-A-N-G, Chunfang Yu, Y-U. Okay. So that would give you a huge background on Kuan Yin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> would take many radio shows to talk about. <laughs> it, it sounds that way. Um, so does she have, uh, besides the sacred island, uh, does she have many temples over in China? Uh, yes. She is in, um, my experience of going to the temples is she's usually, there's a Buddha, usually, and then she's off, she's kind of hidden, so she's behind the Buddha. And metaphorically, I think that can be read several ways, is she's the energy that manifests in the Buddha, so she's the great mother. But she also has to be protected so that she's. you go through the courtyards to find her in the temple. Well, it will, I, I, what popped into my mind as you said that, it's sort of like she's in the cella, uh, you know, more yes. in the holy of holies kind of a yes. thing. Yes, I, I agree. That, that's a good metaphor for her. Okay. And again, I I visited maybe, well, how many did I visit? I'd really have to think, but probably a dozen or more uh, on a trip through China for a month. And um, she was she was always there <laughs> in some form. Mm-hmm. And I would light a, a incense and a candle, and uh, I often left uh, prayer flags. You know, I make these Tibetan-type prayer flags with goddess images on them. So I left her all over. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, 
Well, and you know, when you were talking about the spirit money, it reminds me uh, of the many times we've been to different Chinatowns in San Francisco, yeah. L.A., other places. Yeah. And you can go into these shops and actually buy paper items representative of something you want. I mean, sometimes it's a house or, or you know, a, a car or clothes. I mean, it seems like there's no end to these objects they've made in, in paper. And so is that sort of the same idea of the spirit money? You burn that in the temple, and if you're burning a car, well, maybe you're asking for a car. Or well, I don't know that you would burn the, that image in the temple of a car, but you could do it certainly in, in another way in your own space uh, I've never the burnings I've seen in temples are actually of the papers that they have there I see so um, that would be for your home altar use I would I would think that but you need to ask someone in that from that tradition <laughs> because okay. I'm not, certainly not a, an authority on that but what they've done with those papers in the temples is they will fold them and a bit like origami mm-hmm. into these wonderful shapes so that you could get like a pine cone or a pomegranate that's all folded with these spirit papers. Uh, and then uh, uh, light that. In fact, on the island, Putoshan itself, right by this place, the cave, where the uh, Kuan Yin appeared, there's just a huge, looks like a furnace almost, that you uh, take and put your spirit money in. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> well, it, well, you know, and, and you're making me remember more and more things here. Um, I mean, another thing that happened in San Francisco, and I don't know whether you had occasion to read about this or do it yourself or hear somebody else do it, but what they didn't, or maybe this is just sort of a, a way for the church, the temple to make money, but if you would buy a statue of Kuan Yin and leave it overnight at the temple, the 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 priest or priestess of the temple was actually supposed to infuse the statue with the essence of Kuan Yin. And yes. before you did something like that, I mean, you know, had to take it seriously because that meant when you took it home to your home home altar, you had to, you know, give it water every day and make offerings and That's treat right. it and you, and with you the same it. idea that it was a deity in your home. Right, and you feed it. You bring flowers and, and um, particularly oranges. They seem to like oranges on the, their t- uh, table offerings uh, to Kuan Yin. Okay. So, um, which brings up when you mentioned San Francisco, uh, I, I think the temple there is really the one I visited anyway in Chinatown was a Tin Hao one, T I A N H O U. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yes, and she's more seated uh, on a throne, usually with big gar- uh, uh, lots of garments, mm-hmm. uh, and so she looks more like the Queen Mother. Uh, that I was talking about of the West, Shi Wang Mu. Uh, Kuan Yin is younger, it seems, in many of her depictions than that um, Tin Hao. Uh, okay. And I'm, they're connected, mm-hmm. uh, but the image tradition is a little different. Okay. They do sell Kuan Yin's, though, at the Tin Hao temples. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's actually what uh, what I what I happened to do there. You know, you that was the image you could buy. And even though I knew it was Tian Hao, and she's a Taoist 
uh, goddess, I believe, mm-hmm. if memory serves right. Mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, it all it all still worked. <laughs> it all still works, and it goes together. There's another <laughs> temple in L.A. that I went to of Tin Hao, uh, and uh, it was similar, except it, the one in San Francisco is what on the third floor. So you yeah, third floor walk up. You have to be willing to walk up those three flights of steps, but it's worth it when you get up there. <laughs> right, right. I I recommend visiting there if anyone's listening and hasn't done so. Well, just real quick before we um, you know, before we get back to Asia, where was the one in Los Angeles? Well, you know, I would have to. I can't remember. Okay, I, that's I, all right. I was with a friend who drove me there. And I can't tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I understand that. When Roy drives, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell anybody how we got there either. <laughs> and that Los Angeles is a rather large place to drive. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, how are things different for Kuan Yin in Cambodia, or are they, or is it pretty well, much the same thing? What, for my observations again, it seems like she traveled. And she then morphs and or takes on different aspects. In Vietnam, her name is Quan Am, Q U A N, capital A M. And the uh, temple I visited of hers in Ho Chi Minh City, which is Old Saigon, she was standing, holding the uh, willow and pouring water, and she was very dark. Uh, so it, it was dark wood, but I immediately thought of the connections to Black Madonnas, mm-hmm. and um, so that she was really a dark Quan Yin. Then right behind her was the most amazing room of mothers. I walked into it, and it was U-shaped with uh, about six mothers or five mothers facing me, and five on each side of me, and offerings in front of all of them. And I was told that it was where you went to make your offerings to the mothers for help. And you made them to both the um, for good things to happen and then to try to keep bad things from happening. So one side were the bad mothers and one side was <laughs> good mothers. Now, and I thought you were going to... Both sides had offerings. <laughs> now, I thought you were going to say on one side of the room you ask for wonderful things to happen, and on the other side of the room you ask for all the horrible things to happen to your enemies. <laughs> well, and that might be part of it. That might be part of it. But okay. definitely both side, both the good and the bad ones had many offerings, and they were overseen by a larger group of mothers that I was facing. So I have this... Uh, photo of me standing in the room of the mothers it was very very powerful actually so all together so you're talking about there were more than 10 oh yes i in fact i think there were 15 there were five 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 okay okay and they were sitting there like those tin house so they were um, seated with crowns and then you know kind of those dangly uh, not earrings but something coming down from their head Pieces, mm-hmm. yeah, and then uh, uh, elegant robes, and they were dark. Again, they were dark. Mm-hmm. It stood out to me. Well, it, and forgive me for going back to China here, but and and I might have this wrong. Feel free to correct me. Um, China's not real big on religion, so is she? But obviously, she must be very popular. Does the government just sort of ignore? 
um, the ven- her veneration, or is is there any awkwardness or um, conflict there? Well, I was there in 2003, so I can only speak from that experience. I don't know if it's different now. At that point, the temples were still being very well taken care of, but um, certainly in Beijing, when I'd requested to do that, I wanted to see them. Uh, they gave me a guide who uh, was just as fascinated to learn about it as I was because she knew nothing. Uh, Hmm. But she was studying English, and so she wanted uh, to be a guide. And um, so we kind of explored the whole idea of of a divine feminine, and um, she seemed to be quite open to it. That temple in Beijing wasn't very well. There weren't very people there. Uh, others along the way, there were more, but there definitely were thousands at uh, her sacred island. Okay. On the South China Sea. So I guess if you believed in her, uh, you would feel as, that you needed to go uh, at some point in your life uh, to her island as a pilgrimage, just like people want to visit Guadalupe in Mexico City. Right. She has millions of pilgrims every year. Right. Or, to some extent, the, the Madonnas in Europe. Well, now, does she, is there, uh, does she have a unique way in which she fits into goddess history around the globe? Yes, I think she, she fits into the Great Mother. Okay. History. So, whether it's Isis, um, Mary, Kabele, Magna mm-hmm. Mater, the Great Mother of Rome, um, Guadalupe, uh, Grandmother Spider in the Southwest. I, she, to me, is one of those ancient mothers, and um, her traditions uh, all dovetail or mirror many of the other stories of, of uh, the mothers around the world. Okay. Is she one of your favorites? Well, you know, it's hard for me to say what one's my favorite because I'm always looking for and and creating. And this, the one I'm creating is where my energy is going. Uh, when I was doing China, I really loved her, and I did half a dozen images of her. I have one where she has a thousand arms. Wow. That was a challenge. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so do you actually, are you going to make a banner with her with a thousand arms? I did. Oh, you said, oh, you actually did. Oh, I, I thought maybe yeah, you were right. you were sketching it out or something. No, no, no. I she's one of the the Quan Yin, Chinese Quan Yin's that I've already created. Okay. Uh, and and my most recent one from that area now is from Southeast Asia, uh, from Angkor Wat, where um, in Cambodia, uh, where uh, Buddhism seemed to come from, uh, India. And one of the kings, with a very long name, uh, 12th century, uh, built this huge temple complex. Angkor Wat's the largest temple complex in the world. But what's so amazing about it is there are almost 2,000 female images on the temple that you never hear about or read about. You mean besides the Asparas? Well, these are Apsaras. Are, are dancing, and then there are devatas, D-E-V-A-T-A, and then there are these various goddess images like Lakshmi from the Hindu tradition, 
or um, uh, the one that totally fascinated me was one wringing her hair. And in the um, Buddhist story, when he is um, being tempted by all the demons, there is a, a, a female comes and wrings her hair and makes a flood to kill all the demons. So hmm. this figure wringing her hair was very important in Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. And I, could, I had never seen it before, and I was just dumbfounded. So do you uh, think they're attributing magical powers to hair? Well, I think that's part of it. I really do. And now I've found the earliest image that I can find of this is actually uh, in, from Bactria, uh, which is present-day Afghanistan. Wow. And it's about the second century before the Common Era. So hmm. in some Buddhist ivories, there is a figure wringing her hair. And okay. It, is, it, <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just, I, My brain just leapt in a direction, and I'm going to have to ask you a question. I'm sorry for cutting you off. Please finish your thought. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Well, when I first saw her, I thought, what is that pipe coming out of her head? What, you know, it didn't make sense. And it's actually on the water department in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And I said, there she is. And then I see the Ministry of Water or whatever it is. So it's a perfect um, icon for the water department. But then you would see it. It's on Angkor Wat, on, on one of, or it's in one of the temples there. And then I, I saw it repeated in uh, Laos and then in uh, Thailand. So I, I looked up her name, and it, it's, again, one of those mouthfuls that you have to spell to even. Uh, but it's Niang Priyadarani, which means lady um, of the water, I guess. So, again, there's a figure being attributed to the sacred substance that none of us can live without, and that's water. And so is she also the one with the hair? Right. Okay. Well, here, here was my leap. Okay, my leap okay. in logic, <laughs> and I just okay. wanted to bounce this off you. All right, you said, uh, and I think you said that you, there was another one of these images, did you say found in uh, near Afghanistan or something? Well, that's where the earliest one I can find. The earliest one. Is, I, I, well, what my thought is, do you think there uh, could be any connection between this idea of the hair being magical and powerful and why in these countries now it must be covered? Because, I mean, I know the veil goes back to pre-Islamic right. times. So. Right. Well, it could um, be hair, and I've never thought of that, but definitely the hair is a big uh, part of the story on the temptation of Buddha. Ah. And, uh, right. And, and uh, Mara comes and saves uh, him by wringing her hair. Or Mara's a demon, sorry. And, she, and the Priyang Narani is the is the goddess is name in Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. I don't think it has a name in these Bigram B E G R A M ivories from Afghanistan or Bactria. That's the area that Alexander the Great came to, uh, and it, a lot of art influence came then on that same road, the trade road the road of conquest and so you find very greek and roman looking art uh in 
Bactria, which is Afghanistan. Okay. Um, well, actually, you, you just uh, answered a question for me. I actually had some images of a goddess from uh, Bactria, and I had a heck of a time finding where Bactria was. So that's Afghanistan. Right. Um, so now, um, now you weren't saying that you, or maybe you were. Let me just ask you to, to um, re- repeat, if you don't mind. Um, did you actually see Kuan Yin in Anger Wat, or it was the, you no, know, all, all of the other images? I did no not Kuan see Yin. Kuan Yin in Cambodia. Okay. These other images are, uh, but the one there's an image there that is totally fascinating. It's not Kuan Yin. They call her Ye Dep. And she is one of the images of the leper king from Angkor Wat that was moved to the National Museum. And they felt like uh, it helped the people of Cambodia finally rid themselves of the Khmer Rouge Hmm. and all the horrible um, atrocities that were going on. So there's a shrine to her right in the middle of kind of the street where she is, uh, offerings are, are brought to her. Uh, they actually put lipstick on her, paint her fingernails, and supposedly the king and queen of Cambodia uh, go and give her offerings because she represents the the fundamental uh, civilizing force of the nation. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's actually quite amazing. <laughs> well, and I, I remember when I was researching Anger Wad for my Sacred Places book, um, I was running across uh, usually women scholars writing about the Khmer people and mm-hmm. uh, possibly worshipping the goddess Mer, M-E-R, and um, and all of the also the indigenous rice goddesses in that area right. too. I mean, I can't remember their names all of these years, um, but you know, I, that I found that really interesting too. You know, just like we have the wheat goddess Demeter, you know, then we have the rice goddess. Yeah, uh, or the Oh, you know, Nagar or Nagar is the yes. rice goddess. <laughs> yes, and it makes sense that that's the the sus- substance of sustenance in that area is rice. Right, so absolutely. you would you would be uh, making offerings for the rice goddess. You also do that in in Indonesia. All the shrines in, in the various fields they are, are attended every day to the rice goddess Dewi Sri. So it's um, at a basic level, humanity seems to want to revere who gives them sustenance on a daily basis of the what they need to live, food and water. And, and it seems and, like the further east we go, they haven't let go of her, like we have in the west, where we have to re- rethink her and relearn her into our lives. Um, she's She's been present for them for a much longer right. period of time. Well, certainly uh, on the continuity factor, much longer than, than we are as a young, young uh, nation. And then even with our indigenous peoples, we can't go back to thousands of years that the Chinese peoples can. Right. Well, we we have about uh, probably uh, maybe eight minutes left. 
um, Lydia, unless my other guest calls in late. Um, uh, are there any Kwan Yin's besides the few we talked about uh, in the United States that um, you know stand out for you that maybe you think listeners would uh, want to know about, or well, maybe I think a visitor in probably any large museum. I mean, she's in the Art Institute of Chicago, the Freer Gallery in Washington D.C., uh, the Matt. Um, the L.A. County Museum has a wonderful whole section on um, um, Chinese mm-hmm. art. She's in there. Um, right. So look for her. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, you'll go to, go to your phone book or a phone book. Listen to me. Am I dating myself? Go to your yellow pages on the Internet. <laughs> and Just Google her and you'll find I, lots of images yeah. I know. Yeah, go to you know Chinese temples in your neighborhood, uh, or Buddhist temples uh, in your neighborhood. I'll bet um, on Wikipedia. I'll bet if you put in, um, if you Google Kuan Yin, I'll bet you get images of her. I've been so amazed in the last year or so about the image uh, bank that's on the internet. You mean uh, uh, free to free to use images, or yes, yes. I um, I found a site as I was doing research uh, on Italian art that had 25,000 images of Renaissance art that were better than the entire slide library that I taught with uh, 20 years ago. I mean, I, wow. I just cannot believe, and the quality is was great. So uh, I'm I'm rather amazed. So how do you how do you find this, Lydia? Um, this, well, this, when I, this. I've noticed when I'll put in a topic, like I, I it was probably Michelangelo, uh, in the case of finding this site, and then as you uh, as the Google choices come up, then it'll say images up, and then I'll uh, start clicking in there, and um, I go through them rather quickly because I know. I have my eyes trained to look for certain things, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, but um, I should try it on Kuan Yin. I have not, uh, but I was. That, that's how I found this Renaissance art site. And then I was working I, on that site. Was working on the stories of connecting um, the muses uh, and the creative energies in art mm-hmm. uh, of the Renaissance, and uh, they had fabulous material that I can click into. Then wow. I can and pull them off and put them on my uh, laptop and use them in a slide presentation. Right, right. Or maybe I wonder if you can even uh, use them in uh, a book. I mean, is is are they well, free I think to use? It, it depends. Sometimes it says there there's uh, no it's free access, and sometimes it, they're restricted. Okay. So you definitely well, have to pay attention to that. Well, um, in, in our last few minutes here, why don't we uh, turn our attention to the girls? Um, okay. what, <laughs> what's your, what is the last uh, uh, goddess banner you made, and what's the next one, if, if you have a next one planned? Well, the last one I finished was a dancing Neolithic uh, goddess from Spain, uh, and the next one I'm going to paint is another uh, Spanish goddess, um, La Dama de Ibiza, I-B-I-Z-A. Um, these are for a goddess conference in Madrid in October. 
and so I'm working on that. Uh, I also just did finish an Apsara from Anchor Watt. The girls right now are hanging in Glastonbury at the town hall for the Goddess Conference, uh, which opened Wednesday today. So uh, it's Thursday morning there now, our time. But uh, uh, this morning they would have been doing their opening ceremony in Glastonbury. So they'll be there uh, uh, through Sunday, and they'll carry them through the streets and up the tour. I sent them before I left for Italy uh, uh, to the conference. Uh, I can just are. imagine. I can just imagine how spectacular that's going to be. I mean, have, having the girls there in procession uh, in the street for the, for that festival is like icing on the cake. You know, it's just going <laughs> to uh, just, just make it so much more spectacular. I mean, you have been so generous, Lydia. I mean, you you've you've allowed me to use those on numerous occasions, and uh, I, I mean, you you are just. You you are you are the generous mother, and we thank you for uh, you know for the contribution of these of these wonderful ambassadors of Goddess. That how many years have you been making them now? Well, this is fifteen. They began fifteen years ago in Ephesus, Turkey, at the Celsus Library in July. So um, I was sixty when I started, and if you had told me that I would make two hundred fifty Goddess banners. <laughs> <laughs> the time I was 75, I would have thought that's not possible, but it has <laughs> happened, and I'm past the 250 now. I'm probably about 255, um, and people ask me how do you find them? Really, they find me. If I bet there's an image that needs to be brought out. It seems to keep showing up, and I say, okay, you're going to be a banner. So my uh, next year they're going to fly in Switzerland in St. Gall, and they're going to parade through the streets there in May. And I'm going to be doing a banner uh, for that event of Frau Holle, H-O-L-L-E. She's one of those mountain mothers uh, who's part of that Germanic tradition. And uh, I found an image of her on the Internet. Well, you know, I am sure with all the goddesses out there, they are going to keep you around for a really long time so that they all get uh, a banner in their honor. <laughs> well, I don't know, but uh, I've certainly enjoyed it, and I'll keep going as long as I'm able. Well, you have well, you have brought us all so much with those girls, and uh, I thank you so very much. And listeners, uh, if you haven't already seen these uh, goddess icon spirit banners, again, please um, give yourself a treat. Uh, go to Lydia's website, LydiaRule.com, or I'm sure they can probably just Google your name, Lydia, or goddess yes. icon spirit banners, yes. and it'll all just pop up. Yes. Well, you'll have when you get to my website, click on art and then banners and you'll get them okay and you pop up (laughs) and are you having any classes uh anytime soon or or helping people buy your spirit banners or um i will be at the itp institute of transpersonal psychology in palo alto in september and um then um the banners are going to australia in October, some of them, and then some of them will be in Spain. Uh, And that um, is pretty much happening the rest of the year. Uh, I've had a really busy year up till now, so I'm 
looking forward to a little bit of breathing room. <laughs> well, you've been bit more busy in the last month than people are all year. So, <laughs> well, thank you so so very much for making time to be on the show, especially since you just got back from traveling to three countries and and here you you're making time and staying awake, uh, you know, to be on Voices of the Sacred Feminine again. So uh, I thank you so much, Lydia, for uh, all you do to contribute to rebirthing Goddess. Bless you. You're very welcome, Karen. Thank you very much for all you do. Well, good night, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, listeners, um, I, seriously, go to Lydia Rule's uh, website, uh, www.lydiarule.com. Uh, you will want to see her goddess icon spirit banners uh, because they, these uh, images really are uh, ambassadors of uh, the sacred feminine. You know, um, it's, it's really interesting because they can hang in places that uh, it might still be awkward to talk about a feminine face of God. And it really is uh, as if they are ambassadors and, uh, you know, they open doors, especially in the early days, you know, because Lydia has been making these for a while now. Uh, But I see uh, by my switchboard that uh, our next guest is there waiting. So let me uh, uh, go into the switchboard and say hello to Gloria. Hi, Gloria. Are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I sure can. I can hear you fine. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show tonight. I'm really excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm excited too. Well, let me let me tell listeners uh, a little bit about you first, uh, just in case uh, they haven't found your your beautiful website or discovered your book yet, because uh, through this interview um, they will learn more about you. But um, we're talking now, uh, listeners, uh, to our second guest tonight, Gloria Amendola. She is a psychic intuitive uh, who reads for and works with clients in a variety of ways. She utilizes different card decks and other divination tools, uh, bringing through the departed for those who wish to connect with them. She works with clients to uncover the meaning of dreams as well as uh, the healing energy of those dreams. Uh, She's a certified dream teacher and follows in the footsteps of shamanic mystical traditions. As a writer and teacher of esoteric subjects, she's devoted to the study of the Magdalene Mysteries and the Sacred Feminine. She's been researching Mary Magdalene since 2000 when she wrote a play about her. Uh, I believe it was called Magdalene's Mind, uh, which has been showcased in New York City. Um, she in given uh, a staged reading in Seattle in 2004, and it's been translated into Finnish and Russian for production in those countries. Uh, Magdalene's Mind is included in the complete uh, Idiot's Guide to Mary Magdalene uh, by Lisa uh, Bellavie. And she has also just finished her first novel, The Tower and the Dream, Awakening to the Ancient Voice. And um, we'll mention it again, but while it's here in front of me, let me mention Gloria's website. Uh, It is her name. It is Gloria uh, Amendola.com. So, Gloria, again, we're going to be talking about uh, the sacred places of Mary Magdalene in France tonight. I'm really excited. Oh, thank you. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Oh, feels like well, home. 
Well, you know, that's uh, something you and I share, and it's, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I, I thank Goddess, you know, many years ago, I was a part-time travel agent, and it was at the perfect time, because it allowed me to travel places on my budget, <laughs> you know, so I got to go a lot of places, and do you find that some, you know, it, it's almost like there's some sort of uh, DNA memory, you just sort of connect with certain places on in some way that it's hard to even language? Oh, I I so believe that. And for me, quite surprisingly, it was the land of the Magdalene in southern France. It, okay. The minute, the minute I got into the woods of St. Baum when we were climbing uh, to her grotto, it was on that earth that I connected. And I've traveled pretty extensively throughout the United States, Canada, and in other parts of uh, Europe and the UK, but when I got into the forest lands of southern France, something happened that changed me forever. And even, you know, nine trips, I've been there nine times, um, it, it just in the last oh, four years, and uh, I could not stay away. Wow. I could not stay away, and as a matter of fact, I'm going in September. Well, you know, I'm a little rusty on Mary Magdalene sites, and you know, and and I, you know, there's uh, there's there's no etiquette here. So if I say something wrong, you tell me because I want to keep okay. the information straight in my head. But when okay. you said Saint Bomb, um, I'm trying to remember why that's familiar. Is that where the cave is? She was supposed to have lived out her life, or is that where her relics are in a church? Something. Well, yeah, uh, that's. That's true. Um, the the legends say that she came in through um, Saint-Marie de la Mer, right. uh, which is near Marseille, in that whole area, in that whole region of southern France. And it is said in some of the legends that she spent the last 30 years of her life in those incredible Druid mountains, that energy up there, um, basically communing with the angelic presence. Um, so it was in, I'm not saying that I necessarily believe that particular uh, legend that had her there at that time. I do believe she was there, but I believe it was actually at a different time in her life. But nonetheless, she, her legends are connected there, and her, there is a relic of, uh, an alleged relic of her in that grotto, in that cave, um, and it is the most beautiful and feminine and soft forest that you walk up and you make this pretty good ascent up to the grotto. Um, and, it's, and it's just there where I connected. But they do have her skull in St. Maximine, which is a few miles away. It's at a basilica. And it's the alleged skull of Mary Magdalene, which they parade around every uh, July 22nd, Magdalene Feast Day, and, and yell, Viva la Madeleine, because they're just, they understand who she was. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we we had um, you know we had a fella uh, in the building where I live. Uh, his uh, his last name uh, was uh, Madalena, and he was from France. And he was telling me about how the people still there are are so devoted to her. And so uh, devoted. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, and, uh, and, and and you know, and even with all the Dan Brown stuff that came out and. Um, you know, he, he uh, and, and what was it? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. With the, the church was trying uh, to debunk something, and, and they said no. Um, oh shoot, I, I, I'm a little foggy on it. But he was saying, you know, uh, absolutely, the people still, you know, believe in all oh, yeah. of these things yeah, now. The, well, it's interesting because the day 
um, the the day let's see was it the day after uh, the Da Vinci Code movie came out? I think I flew to France for the first time. Um, ended up in Paris at Saint-Sulpice where the Catholic Church, now this is funny in my opinion, the Catholic Church in Saint-Sulpice had these um, bulletin boards, portable, sta- you know, standalone bulletin boards with pages and pages of why the Da Vinci Code wasn't true. Mm-hmm. The place was packed with people. And yet, the minute you go into, and I've only seen this in France, at saint Baume and at Saint-Sulpice in Paris, as you walk in, the very first side altar of the uh, of Central Peace to the on the right. left hand side. No, as you walk in to the right, the very first altar there. Okay. You have a Pieta, and I've only seen this, it, you know, in Saint Balm and, and Central Peace. The Pieta includes Magdalene. Ah. So you have the mother, you know, the classic Pieta with the with the dying Christ in her in her arms or the dead Christ. I mean, um, you know, that's the Pieta. But in both of those, you have the Magdalene. And the Magdalene is deeply connected to him in a very intimate way, and it's very physical. And I don't think that that would have been portrayed throughout art history if there wasn't a real connection between the two, you know, given Hebrew Hebrew laws at the time and so on and so forth. So it was hysterical that here they were refuting the whole thing, and yet within the church they have a pieta with Mary Magdalene. So just for the just in case my listeners don't know what a pieta is, it's when the the woman is holding the dead body of Jesus, and it's usually his mother. But you're saying that in this case it was Mary Magdalene holding the body. No, what I'm saying in this case is it's the mother holding the body, but instead of two people being in the pieta, there are three. Oh, and the third person is the Magdalene, and she kneels. She's on the ground. Uh, kneeling more uh, by his body in in connection with it in a different way than the mother. And so I just believe that it's a depiction of who she truly was. Well, you know, this might be going off track just a tad, so forgive me, but you brought up St. Sulpice, and I can't resist um, this sort of train of thought. I've been to St. Sulpice. Every time we go to Paris, I don't miss it because it's thought to also be a, a site where an old Isis temple used to stand. Yeah. And then, and, and so, uh, and it had these Priory of Sion connections because of, um, you know, Dan Brown. Mm-hmm. And what, and I don't know whether you noticed when you were there, uh, but when you, um, and, and I don't know, forgive me, I don't know what they call the different parts of the church, but as you're walking down the center aisle and you look to the left at, at this, the sort of the entrance uh, at the center of the church, they had a stained glass window um, over now what's been, I think, turned into a confession box. They actually had a stained glass that, in my opinion, it was really, it would be really hard hard to um, say it was not a stained glass that represented the Priory of Sion. Uh, they said that it was representative of St. Paul, but whenever you saw St. Paul stained glass, um, the overlay was different. Because this was also, St. Sulpice was also supposed to be where the Priory of Sion met. And that's yeah. that's what I was trying to remember a second ago um, when I was talking about my friend uh, from France with the last name of, of Madalena, he said, without a doubt, 
quote, he said, the people in France do believe the prior of Sion really uh, did and does exist in spite of all the, the debunking. Now, you know, I don't know for sure. You know, I'm not an I've expert. Met people from, I've met people from the priory. I've okay. met people who, uh, I've met two people who claim to be from the priory and, um, I would have to say that most likely, in my opinion, they either are or they are connected in some way. Okay. And, um, and do you do you have a – well, I mean, you know, there's so much I want to ask you, uh, but before we get off the prior of Sion, and I think this all is going to tie together in the end, we'll come full circle, um, the, do, you, do you have any thoughts on uh, if there is still a bloodline and anything about the Dan Brown movie, or did these prior of Sion people, I don't know, drop any clues to you you thought might be interesting to share or – um, well, Tim Wallace Murphy is a friend of mine, and he's written fascinating books, um, two in particular, Rex Deus and Custodians of the Truth. Rex Deus is the first, Custodians of the Truth is the second. And so he, if you read those books, and I know Tim um, is an impeccable researcher. He's 80 years old now. He lives in France. He's retired from the U.K., a psychologist by profession, uh, by study, certainly, and a very successful writer later in life, he um, maintains, and I trust his word, that the bloodline was in fact real and that the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene was a bloodline within a bloodline, if you will. What does that and mean? That, well, it's, a, it, it's, it's its own bloodline within a broader spectrum of bloodlines. Okay. And if you read Rex Deus, you'll get the whole blueprint of how it is said that these 24 priestly families that organized after the fall of the Temple of Solomon uh, in Jerusalem, they organized to keep the secrets alive, that they came, really they began in Egypt. And before that, we won't even speculate, but in Egypt, and they they moved through um, the Holy Land, and at the fall, that turning point of, of the fall of the Temple, they begin to organize and to protect their teachings. And so the bloodline um, are, are several bloodlines that exist, and the Jesus and Mary Magdalene bloodline is one in particular, one very potent bloodline, but one, you know, and it has its own name called the Despicini. Okay. I do believe that there is an incredible history, which, when truth be told shows how these bloodline descendants were hunted down uh, generation after generation after generation. Hmm. And um, and I do believe that they, as a matter of fact, um, I forgot. I've, I've had so many experiences in this story. I've actually met an American woman who's uh, bloodline to this day, you know, in, in the current time as well. And um, you know, she lives here. Hmm. And, and, and I'm, a, you know, not... Um fantasy i mean you know you with good reason you think she might be legitimate oh yes oh yes and and it's interesting who she is in the world and what she does in the world and that she has the documents um that are said to prove her her lineage i mean can you say or is it something she keeps private i can't say Okay, well, that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, do, do you have any thoughts on the ideas of, uh, you know, the Templars uh, if, or the Cathars, if they were actually, uh, you know, really trying to keep the secrets? I mean, is, is, does your oh, book absolutely. go into any of that? Or 
Um, book three, will, uh, book two, which I'm will be writing this fall, um, will go into the Cathars and Templars. I am a, a modern day Templar. Um, actually, I'm a French Templar, and that's a story in and of itself. And so I, I, I take the Templar history very seriously, but I am always looking for the arcane history and the inner circle. And if I cycle back to Tim Wallace Murphy's uh, work on the Rex Deus lineage, the Templars were the warrior monks who were an outer visible um, extension of the inner Rex Deus lineage. So it was very deliberate what they were doing in history and what they were looking for. So do you uh, can you speculate on, you know, these theories? I mean, I, I realize you, you, you maybe can't know for sure, and so I'm just asking for your opinion. You know, mm-hmm. all of these rumors that you hear about, uh, you know, did the Templars really have the Ark of the Covenant, or, you know, uh, were, did they become so rich because they were really blackmailing the church with information they uncovered at the Temple Mount? I mean, I realize they became the first bankers, so that could have been a source of their money. But what about the other ideas? I don't think they were blackmailing the church at all. Um, that's not my sense. Um, and I've, I've I've studied a lot and traveled a lot in search of who the Templars were. I'm not quite done, and um, the the third book will go into this much more. And I hope to write a book on this as well, a nonfiction book. But having said that, what I have been able to figure out so far, and this is from being on the ground, um, you know, in France and England and Spain and. Uh, with different members of the order and all the way the connections are put together, that the Templars most likely, when they were excavating under the stables of the Temple of Solomon, found documents, um, found alchemical, um, uh, scientific um, formula, Mm-hmm. found genealogies, found uh, artifacts. And in the tour that Renee Burnett and I are doing uh, in Rennes-le-Chateau in September, we'll be going to a location right outside of Rennes-le-Chateau in Elette les bains where there are carved um, symbols on what is considered the Nostradamus family home, wherein one set of three symbols shows carvings that uh, my Templar commander in that region explained to me was showing the Templar cross, the Ark of the Covenant, and salmon, which is a play on Solomon. Hmm. And what he says, very bright guy, and what he says was that in this home that there was someone of Templar origin, birth, rank, whatever, that must have been pretty pure of heart in some way to be able to touch the Ark of the Covenant, and they connect it with the salmon with Solomon. And so the legends say that there are so many things buried in the area or were buried in the area because they then brought those artifacts, documents, and so forth that um, that they knew were there. And the question is, well, okay, how did they know they were there? But they brought them to the area of southern France, uh, especially around the Rennes-Chateau region. So was there – now, well, okay, so we, I think most of our listeners probably know enough of the story to know that, okay, after Jesus is crucified, you know, we think Mary, possibly with child, escapes to southern France. Was there a reason that they chose southern France, or was it just conveniently, convenient uh, logistically? 
No, I think there was a very specific reason. There's an excellent book out there called Jesus After the Crucifixion by Graham Simmons. Graham was one of the authors on Rex Deus with Tim Walsh Murphy and Marilyn Hopkins. And Graham finished this book with his partner Ingrid, um, <clears throat> and then he passed. He was a longtime resident of Rennes Chateau, and Ingrid still lives in Rennes. Um, and they they make a phenomenal case in the book of why that group, and it wasn't just Magdalene, and, and there's another piece to add in, why they would have come to southern France. But let me just back up and say, in that basilica in St. Maximin in the Provence region, which holds her alleged skull, there is an account that you could pick up written in pamphlet form in many languages that says the official Vatican account says that Mary Magdalene was a part of, uh, was a group of 72 people that came to southern France. So it wasn't just a small entourage with Joseph of Arimathea or something. No, Joseph of Arimathea was a shipping tycoon. I mean, this was a large, larger contingent, and this is what the people of southern France believed. So how did, why did they go to southern France? Well, you know, there are some of um, very affluent Roman exiles, uh, Romans were exiled to that area. Um, It was an enlightened area. There were many streams of thinking and of uh, of religion there. The Essenes were there. Uh, The Kabbalists were there. You know, it's kind of like a Berkeley. Yeah, kind of like a place of higher learning or something. Yes, higher learning, higher practice, a very evolved place. And if you believe that Jesus and Mary, and certainly the mother, came through um, the traditions of the Essenes, it, you know, it said that those communities were there, too. So I imagine they had a pretty sophisticated network. Well, now, are you of the, of one of those, of the thought of one of the theories that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross? And he, because I think that might have been in Templar Revelations. They, uh, they point out a lot of things that, that suggest perhaps he really didn't die. It was staged. Um, have you heard that? Or you know? Oh, absolutely. And that was a tough one for me personally. I grew up Italian Catholic, and so you know the crucifixion was pretty ingrained into my psyche. Um, and I've had a hard time with did Jesus die on the cross or did he die afterwards? And I have to say, as hard as this is for me to say, that I don't believe he probably, I'm pretty sure he didn't die on the cross would be my take, and that he actually lived in southern France as well, among other Mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in Rennes-le-Chateau, there's a very interesting station of the cross, which was painted by the priest Saunier there. I believe it's the 14th station. And in the station, in that particular one, they're carrying Jesus in the tomb, or maybe out of the tomb, we don't really know, but there was a full moon, and Jewish law at the time said that you wouldn't touch a, a dead body at night. Yeah, there's a painting about that too. I think they used as an, ex, uh, as, you know, to to sort of perpetuate this idea too, and uh, in this this book that I read about that. Well, um, you know, the other thought, um, you know, about you know. Uh, uh, well, I think, again, this went back to Templar Revelations, and I know you were going to talk about a connection between Mary Magdalene and Isis, but I couldn't help but wonder if they were right in Templar Revelations when they said Jesus and Mary Magdalene might very well have been practicing uh, the Osirian Mysteries. 
uh, like when Lazarus was raised from the dead, maybe it was an Osiris ritual. And, you know, when she anointed him, uh, you know, she was acting as, you know, like an ancient pagan priestess would have acted. Um, just curious about your thoughts on that. Well, I think some of that was enacted in the story of um, Mary anointing the head of Jesus with the spikenard. That's mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Um, I think that that was a, a ritual that um, kind of anointing the uh, priest king, if you will. There, were, there was a certain understanding of ancient mysteries to that. But if you go back and look at Mithras and other um, stories like Jesus, they're in the Isis Osiris. It's really um, common in many um, um, stories of, of religious figures like this. So it's not even just Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Isis, Osiris. There's even more. And that's when you begin to understand that in um, the ancient Christian world and how they were conforming the new religion to other uh, pagan religions, that they were usurping many of the um, storylines. Well, probably because the pagans were were familiar with it, so they wanted to give them something familiar to transition to. Exactly. Temples, churches, you know, were overlaid on temples and on us also, too, because of sacred sites and energies in the earth. But, you know, the the uh, dying, resurrecting God, that was a very commonly known ancient um, archetypal pattern, if you will. Right, right. And quite not, frankly, that's how I see Jesus. You know, he was just the next in the dying, rising king line. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this is such interesting stuff. I love this. (laughs) Oh, you know, it is interesting. And some people think when you begin to talk like this that you're denigrating the story or Jesus. And then nothing could be farther from the truth as far as my world. I believe that Jesus was a phenomenal teacher and healer. Um, I believe that we never got the true teachings. I believe those were usurped because the Holy Roman Empire, which became the church, um, they had their own agenda. Yeah, and it's called power over the people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, because, look, even though um, I call myself a recovering Catholic, you know, I grew mm-hmm. up in Catholic mm-hmm. school, all of that, um, it's the institution I have a problem with. You know, yeah. it's not it's not Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. I think, you know, he would have been a feminist. I think he would have been a liberal. You know, I think I could have got along just fine with Jesus. You know, I'd have had mm-hmm. him over for dinner, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah, I do. And uh, but you know the other thing about going back to Jesus maybe not having died on the cross and again feel free to correct me but I think one of the one of the um, things that people point to when they want to say he didn't even live is that the Romans were meticulous record keepers and I think the Romans actually have no record of his crucifixion. So it was just a whole fabricated Christian story, you know, to, you know, to create Christianity, which also makes me think maybe that's why he could have escaped to France with Mary Magdalene. Is, is there a flaw in that thinking? I, I mean, because if there is, please tell me. Cause <laughs> well, I do believe that Jesus existed. I believe that Mary Magdalene existed and Jesus existed. What I do know is that tons of records were destroyed, when, especially when it, came to the Jesus story. And there's there's some very interesting reasons as to why. Um, 
So I do believe that they existed. I do believe that not only were the records destroyed, but I I believe that many in the Despacini bloodline were hunted down ruthlessly and killed. And, you know, I I didn't understand why um, for so long, and I was watching The Da Vinci Code the other night, just happened to come on TV, and I've seen it multiple times, but I said, well, there was nothing else on, so let me just kind of relax and you know, maybe I'll fall asleep on the couch. And I found myself really engaged in it again. And when Silas, the albino, who's a penitente, who's inflicting the, the pain and suffering on himself, mm-hmm. looked into Sophie Nouveau's face and said, every breath you take is a sin, I understood how they so reviled the feminine and so reviled the sexual act that they would find always warriors or mercenaries like Silas who would go after and kill those of the bloodline. Well, and also too, I, I mean, and I'm and and as I hear you saying that, I'm I, you know, it makes connections in my head as a uh, a feminist theologist that, you know, they were so anti-nature, so anti-woman, um, you know, this idea of the sacred feminine and divine masculine in balance, that was so powerful, you know, and, and, and you know, they, they wanted they wanted their own power um, and, you know, to take it away from uh, the sacred feminine, you know, that had had it. Uh, you know, for so long. I, I don't feel like I'm being very eloquent here, but but I, I to no, me, no, exactly I, what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's you know they they have they have just turned nature you know on its head. You know, sex is taboo. Well, sex used to you know it's the life force for heaven's sake. You know, we should you know we shouldn't have to feel ashamed. And right. uh, I, I mean, there's just so much that has um, you know literally been you know turned on its head by. Uh, you know, this, this Christianity making us, uh, reprogramming us, you know, to, to just think these absurdities, quite frankly. But Oh, to uh, take us totally into separation of our power and our ability as a human, as a spirit-filled human being. And I think Jesus was teaching that initiatory pathway back, whether it was a Gnostic pathway or, you know, I would say that it, it's Gnostic, but it's also based in the Egyptian mysteries. And um, that was about direct connection. And well, I'm positive in all that I've seen and experienced around the Magdalene that she was a person of direct connection to source, to God, to spirit. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going to have that. Well, of course not, especially as a woman, too, I think. you know. Um, and they, I guess, wanted to destroy the bloodline because... Uh, they they didn't want some uh, what is it and someone to come and usurp their power you know right. um, well well now I mean I could go on and on but you know there are some points here we were going to cover I want to make sure we touch on um, you were going to make a connection between Mary Magdalene and Isis and Mary Magdalene to the Black Madonna um, so can you know let, let's go there now if uh, and and then we'll come back to this if we have time we have probably about a half hour left. Okay. Hmm, connections to Isis. I guess in all the years of my work and my meditations or shamanic journeys with the Magdalene, she has always told me that Egypt is the key to everything. She's taught me many things from the spirit realm, and most of what I am taught has an Egyptian connection according to her. And it would make sense to me that if Mary was initiated in the mysteries, the prevailing culture at the time would have most likely connected her to Isis worship and veneration of the goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I can, 
I'd have to write a book on that. Well, I am going to write this second book. It's going to be that connection. But so many times when I've traveled in France, I've somehow found the Magdalene's place name next to the name of Isis. Something in the earth, whether it's a stream or a river or a, a sacred site or, you know, local hidden stuff, you find Magdalene in the Isis, and, and, and Isis connected. And that along with what my shamanic journeys or right brain intelligence has shown me, there are many times when I'm reading stuff in Gnostic um, Christianity or deeper into the mysteries where I've uncovered different um, sayings or interesting little fragments, and I somehow can always tie things back to ancient Egypt. So I think that Magdalene in her time would have been connected to ISIS. It just makes sense. I mean, there was no Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would have been, and I believe that Jesus was, um, you know, connected to the Egyptian mysteries as well. I believe he studied, you know, um, with the Druids too. And those washed years that we don't know anything about, supposedly. Um, Well, you know, uh, R.E. Witt, um, he's one of my favorite sources, uh, you know, uh, on ISIS. I mean, he's a scholar, and he said uh, one of his quotes, and I hope I do it justice here, the gist of it is, if, uh, if civilization had been able to move forward on a matriarchal basis, that Isis would have been too powerful a mistress to dethrone, uh, because we know her worship spread through, you know, all of Europe. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, for for listeners who might not know that and think she was just a goddess, an obscure goddess in Egypt, that's just not the case. Not at all. And a lot of places where you have churches, especially in Europe, um, you have that Roman underlay, that layer of history, and, of course, things that go way be- before that. At Rennes-le-Chateau, in particular, you have a Church of Mary Magdalene, but many people there believe that what lies in the ground underneath the uh, Church to Mary Magdalene um, was a temple to Isis. Yeah. And th- that wouldn't be such a far stretch because that's usually the way the church usurped the power of the land and the familiarity of going to worship in a location already, you know, through the pagan traditions um, and, and used that um, familiarity with the people, if you will. So the goddess, uh, the Isis veneration was all over the place. And I just feel that even if Magdalene was connected to the Essene community, um, like it is said that Jesus and certainly his parents were connected to them. The esoteric traditions tell us that they were connected to ancient Egypt too. The, to the great healing traditions, yeah. The, the the great healing traditions of the ancient Therapeutae in Egypt evolved into the Essenes as well. And I believe that Jesus was an incredible healer, but I don't. I believe that Magdalene was too. So um, you know, I, I'm, I, I can't remember the name of the docudrama that came out a couple years ago on very limited release, but it was a, it was about this guy going through southern France and he had uncovered this tomb and it was about trying to see if that was a Mary Magdalene tomb or a Templar tomb. Oh, that's Bloodline. That's Bloodline. Okay. Yeah, that's um, my friend Renee's. Uh, Renee and I are doing the tour too. Um, Renle Chateau in September, and Ben, who discovered the tomb, will be with us. He's going to oh, show I'm, us. 
Okay, I'm so glad. Yeah. All, right. Yeah. All right, so what I'd love for you to talk about is 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 that, you know, uh, what you can tell us more about that. And also, um, I listened to him at a Q&A after the movie, and he said something about not too far from this tomb, they believed they were going to soon uncover an ISIS temple there in southern France. And I wonder if you have heard anything about that or if that's actually happened. Um, that hasn't happened, and I think if Ben Ben said that Ben Hammett, um, you know I forgot the name the of the guy person who, who did the Q and A, but it was somebody associated with the film. Okay, okay. Where did you you saw the film in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It had to be Renee had to be there, uh, my friend. But um, it has not been um, uncovered. Uh, some people believe it's in the location of the Church of Mary Magdalene at Rennes Chateau. Uh, some people believe that there is a goddess temple um, underneath the church at Saint-Sauvaire above Olet le ben which is where those Nostradamus carvings are that I mentioned earlier. It's all over the place, uh, but yeah. nothing has been um, nothing has been unveiled yet because the French government is very particular about letting people dig around there because there. There was so much digging in the 60s. You know, people were blowing up everything, trying to find the Templar treasure. So they had to put laws into effect. I see. Okay. Well, since the movie Bloodline came out, is there anything more to the story that can be told? Um, now, see, that's a tricky one for me. There is much more to the story, but I personally cannot tell it at this time. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have to. It, is it Ben? Maybe we'll have to get him on the show if he's ready. Oh, know, I can. When, when I can connect you with the producer Renee Barnett, who's a dear friend, who we're doing the tour together. Uh, Renee is in Los Angeles, and you can um, connect with her, and I'm sure that she can tell you. And you know, she's connected with Ben Hammett, and of course, she was a producer on the film. Okay. Um, and they could tell you more. It's just not for me to say, but yes, there is much more of a story. All right. Well, we will do that. Um, so thank you for that. And and but let's move on because I want to make sure we talk about your book. Um, and, and I'm curious, Gloria, um, it, it, as a as a psychic, intuitive, or uh, you know, working with dreams, is that how you first, um, but you know, became connected with Mary Magdalene? And I and I assume that sort of inspired this whole quest and book in this direction of your life. Yeah, it's a it's a very funny story. Um, years back, uh, years ago, I used to write um, some plays for theater in local theater, and they had been performed and produced, and it was great fun. <clears throat> but then I had a child. Um, I had my son Michael, and uh, I had the obligations of family life and raising him, and so on and so forth. So a lot of years went by, and I did smaller creative tasks as the focus was more on 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 raising him and family, and so you know, and all of that. Well, when he you know was getting on in high school years, I said, you know, I think it's a time. I think it's time to um, write another play. And I had gone to a church at the time of someone had asked me to go with them. And I wasn't really a churchgoer, but I agreed to go. And um, I'm not so big on religion. Spirituality, yes. Religion, no, not really. But I went, and I was just saddened by the lack of any feminine presence. And I said, this just is completely wrong. So I came home, and I said, I'm writing my play about a spiritual woman of the Bible. And I got a bunch of books out of the library on both Old and New Testament women, 
And I swear to God, it's as, as if Mary Magdalene came alive on my dining room table as a holographic, you know, as a hologram, and, you mm-hmm. know, just, and said, "Pick me, pick me, pick me." And I thought, "Oh my God!" <laughs> and I and and I hate to say this, as evolved as I was about certain things, I was completely unaware of who she could be. Um, being indoctrinated into Catholicism, I was still believing the old I, story, huh? Yeah, Jesus Christ Superstar. You know that that yeah. was my <laughs> most current and independent, you know, idea of who she could have been. So when I I decided, okay, I'm going to write a play about her. So I started my research, and I was absolutely shocked. I would stay up till like two, three, four in the morning and just read. I just couldn't stop reading, and that's how it began. Well, well, you know, I think this is one of the biggest mysteries of our time, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, maybe it's just this, you know, my love for the romance. But, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it feels like we have all of these little pieces to the puzzle. You know, the Isis, the Mary, this whole bloodline, all of it. But it's like we, you know, we're just missing, uh, we're, we're missing enough parts to prove it. You know, it's almost like something you have to take on faith. Yeah, it's um you have to you have to really be dedicated to this journey because it is extremely challenging. Um it is really the quest for the grail. Um and that's your own transformational process as you seek the deeper truth, the hidden truth, what was, you know, hidden away from us and yet what um the guardians of the grail have always kept going that Rex Deus lineage. They've always seeded consciousness throughout the generations to keep the story alive until one day the truth would be told. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that the truth exists in the Vatican archives. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I absolutely, yeah, I mean, I'm convinced. Um, and I do believe that they know the true story. And I do believe it will come out in our time. I think we're much closer. And I think at least we're starting to find some evidence, like, you know, the... Um, the Gospel of Judas, the Nag Hammadi text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, those all tell us a very different um, story. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, they're transitioning the minds of the people from these programmed uh, robots to, you know, starting to plant so many seeds that the story could have been something different so that people's minds will be open, I think, when maybe this is all finally revealed. Well, you know, those of the, the guardians of the grail, the priory, whomever these people truly are, it's, it, it, it is the same lineage and the same purpose, no matter who they were, priory of Zion, this one, that, Freemasons, you name it. They, they kept um, truth alive through medieval tarot, through the troubadour tradition, through art history, through stained glass windows. I mean, I have pictures of Jesus and Mary Magdalene together on altars and stained glass that are stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll see the marriage window in Limoux outside of Rennes Chateau in September, and it's just beautiful. Why Is that the somebody... one where she looks like she's pregnant? No, that's the one that Margaret Starbird often features. That's in the. It's on the Bloodline logo. That was from Scotland. I think the Isle of Mull, um, where they're holding the right hand, which is a, a symbol or a sign of the nuptials, and she looks pregnant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People will see it on my website if they go, because that was, you know, that's kind of the tour uh, image that we've used. Well, now your book, The Tower and the Dream, um, how does that fit into this whole story? Is this your personal journey finding 
the you know a more authentic Mary Magdalene? Well, the first book, this will be a series of five, and I've been working on all five, but the first one is done. And in that um, Is that novel, The Tower in the Dream? And, um, the Tower in the, the Dream. Okay. Yep. The Tower in the Dream, Awakening to the Ancient Voices. What happens is um, the main character in this story uh, has an experience. It's like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the tarot deck, and the imagery, but in the trump cards, there's a, a card literally called the tower. And when somebody, and I do this in readings a lot for people, when they have the tower card uh, come up, their life is either going to or is in the process of completely falling apart and breaking down. Much like the astrology of this summer says our world is doing. We're just in this mm-hmm. incredible transformation of seeing all these things in the old that don't work. And you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, two, the two things that lag behind are politics and religion. Mm-hmm. And they're just fighting like crazy because that's where the power is, whereas technology is just, you know what I mean? Science right, right. Is, is moving forward. Technology is moving forward. But we're still doing this battle in religion and politics because of the money and the power. Right, exactly. Um, so, so I don't know. It's um, I think I lost my thought on that one. Oh, where well, I was you, were, you were – well, I was asking you uh, sort of a synopsis of the tower and the dream. How did oh, it come God. <laughs> okay, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I forgot about my own book. That's crazy. Uh, so the, the uh, main character in this um, story has that experience, and everything falls apart in her life. And as she tries to make sense, she heads out to the American Southwest to, for some R&R. And that's when her journey begins, and she begins to have visions of Jesus appearing to her, tipping her the grail cup and uh, sacred symbols and geometry, and she's hired a tour guide, and she goes to these different uh, sacred sites throughout New Mexico, and um, all of a sudden she's awakening, and she begins to hear the voices. So at the beginning of each chapter is an ancient voice, whether it's Isis or Jesus or Teresa of Avila or Jacques de Molay of the Templars or Joan of Arc. I mean, it's it's someone different in each chapter. And it's this beginning metamorphosis of before um, Magdalene becomes a front and center teacher from the spirit realm for her, which is more of book two, she is uncovering the energies of the Southwest in the United States and all the things that are just helping her to awaken. Mm, sounds really interesting. And how when we change like that, how when we awaken, we then come back to our lives and deal with family and friends and situations and jobs and so on and so forth because this is what people are wrestling with is what do you do when you begin to awaken and change and yet you're in relationship in the world. Right. Well, yeah, we talk about that actually within goddess spirituality because when women really start to get this and they see the oppression and uh, they understand how it all came about and what keeps it in place, I mean, it's almost like some run away from it because it almost it, it demands transformation, you know, if you're, if you're yeah. really going to move forward. Um, you, you just can't stay stuck. I think you would go crazy. <laughs> yeah, once, once that vibration begins to change and once you begin to awaken, well, I know um, my personal journey, which some of my personal journey is flavored, you know, uh, peppered throughout the, the novel. You know, it's, you know, some of it's personal and some of it's fictional. And it all blends together. And, um, you know, that's, 
the art of the novel, I think, but um, in my own journey, I remember times of meditation or channeling with friends and girlfriends hanging out and being asked, um, do you want to keep going? Because once you get to this point, you're hitting the point of no return. Yeah. And, you know, really having to give that careful consideration because you don't know what that means. You're like the fool in the tarot and you take the leap of faith. Oh, but so absolutely. <laughs> you know, but then, then at some point, like you said, you can't turn away from it. Yeah, I, I, well, or at least uh, I couldn't, and I'm and I'm and I'm hearing you certainly couldn't. You yeah. know, it's it's like, or you know, maybe you could call it like, uh, you know, curiosity that killed the cat. But <laughs> but you know, you have to keep moving forward. Then you know, and it does. It changes you in uh, in profound ways. And I mean, like my family, for instance, they're still Catholic, living in Louisiana. You know, they they're so worried for me. They're afraid I'm going to burn in hell. And when I say, mm-hmm. don't worry, they're there's no hell. They just freak out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, and we haven't even had the conversation about Mary Magdalene and Jesus, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I just, uh, I, I think this is such important stuff, and that book sounds really interesting. Maybe we'll do a, a book exchange or something. I'd love to. Okay. Uh, I'd, I'd love to read it. Well, well, I want to make sure we talk about your upcoming tour, and uh, I'm really curious about your last talking point, which was the divine feminine. How does it sync up with the Mayan calendar? Ah, um, that's good stuff. So why don't you? Why don't we go there, and then we'll close things off with uh, your tour information and some of the sacred sites of Mary Magdalene you're going to see on the tour. Okay. Okay. How does the divine feminine sync up with the Mayan calendar? Well, I've read stuff on the calendar in 2012, lots and. I've talked a lot, you know, done local talks and stuff like that. And the best information, some of the best information I have found was through Johan Kalman, uh, The Mind Calendar and the Transformation of Consciousness. And basically to, to shrink some very complex information into very simplistic terms, um, he says that in, the, that in the calendar, interwoven in the calendar are these nine underworlds. And we're concluding the eighth underworld, which began in 1999, ends in early, early 2011, like maybe January, February. And then the ninth underworld comes in uh, and has to complete itself itself on an evolutionary basis in, in about 10 months, which is extraordinarily fast. So if we think things are moving fast now. And right. The, the interesting aspect of the eighth underworld is that the right brain impulse had to come onto the planet because we were so out of balance. Mm-hmm. And to me, the right brain is the you know the, that feminine impulse mm-hmm. um, had to permeate itself into the consciousness. Into it had to weave itself back into our collective consciousness because Christianity had removed that from the equation mm-hmm. and in in the book he makes a fascinating point that in the, the characteristics of these different underworlds it makes it ripe you know like in Les Miserables there's nothing more potent than an idea whose time has come mm-hmm. the, the idea about Mary Magdalene being the beloved of Jesus the wife the mother of his children um, that's why the Cathars it's one of the reasons why the Cathars were um, burned and the Inquisition happened, you know, the heretics. The Templars, it's a little more complicated. Um, But this has been around a long time. But what made it really stick 
what made you know the last temptation of christ was out there martin scorsese film holy blood holy grail my friend henry lincoln's book with the other two guys is that that opened a lot of people up but the da vinci code occurred in the eighth underworld and look at what happened there mhm that was a worldwide phenomenon you're not kidding i remember the truth squads and all the documentaries and uh it i loved it yeah <laughs> You know, I mean, it just really, I mean, opened up people to the idea of a feminine face of God who didn't even consider it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then to begin to look into not only that uh, history, but then the history of other traditions, certainly ancient Egypt was, you know, very much connected. And you had the, you know, you always had that male-female counterpart because in truth it's the same, it's a unified energy and it's both male and female. Mm-hmm. And Jesus actually teaches about this in the Gnostic Gospels. I think it's the, I don't know if it's the Gospel of Philip or Thomas, uh, but he, he talks about uh, male becoming female and female becoming male. And mm-hmm. it's the whole alchemical process within ourselves as well. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that the impulse of this eighth underworld held the feminine to balance us. So it wasn't only just seeing a feminine face of God, but it was also remembering that in balance within ourselves, we have to have both male and female energies. Uh, That's alchemy. So it was working on the internal level, it was working on the outer level, and it was hitting us in a place of our spirituality. Okay, so alchemy in, in, in the psychological sense as opposed to turning something into gold. Right. I mean, base metals into gold... You know, some people say, yes, they did it. Some people say, no, they didn't. But the, the larger analogy is, is being on your spiritual quest. And right. in ancient Egypt, it was known as the great work of blending the both, hem, using both hemispheres of the brain to move forward. Well, and the Egyptians were so much about balance, too. It makes right. perfect sense. You know, yep. things weren't in balance. They were scared to death of chaos. Um, well, so so what? Um, I mean, this this uh, you know this divine feminine syncing up with the calendar um, from your. Forgive me, I forgot the gentleman's name who who you got a lot of your Mayan calendar information from. Um, is there a sense of what's in store? I mean, if anyone can say. I mean, are we just looking at an enlightened time, or are we, you know, or do you think we're looking at Armageddon and starting over again with a more balanced society? Or, I mean, I know that's that's a huge question, but I just wonder. It is a huge question. I mean, I've heard so many different things, and if truth be told, I don't know, and perhaps it's not scripted. Yeah. Um, I think that I would like to believe it's a transformation of consciousness, and as the Ninth Underworld comes in in 2011, which is, you know, what, six months away, um, it's going to move so fast that it's going to bring us into this enlightenment. Will the Earth respond? Are we responding? I do believe so. I think we're already seeing um, evidence of Earth changes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's also accelerated by our lack of understanding in the um, corporate world globally mm-hmm. that unless we do business right, we're not going to be around to appreciate the mother, <laughs> Mother Earth. So I don't know, honestly. Right. Well, I, with I, the, 
it would be easy, wouldn't it, if this this Christian idea of the rapture, well, not the rapture happened, but this idea that the end times sort of come, and the end times really is just the end of sort of the status quo that hasn't been working for most of us, that end. And, you know, and maybe everybody's enlightened because the divine masculine and sacred feminine appear as an apparition that they get on television that's broadcast all around the world, and they say, get it right now, you know, yeah. there's both of us, this isn't supposed to be a male-dominated patriarchal world, right. you know. <laughs> that's how I'd write it, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I think we do have to be in balance on all levels with the the masculine and the feminine, and I am encouraged that more and more women are taking positions of of strong leadership, especially in America, because it's so desperately needed for that balance um, for us moving forward. I don't know what's going to happen. All I do know is that I've always heard work on your vibration, you know, work on really being aligned to the truth and, mm-hmm. and to your heart. And um, So it's not like you've had any dreams or psychic visions or anything like that that uh, might leave us any clues. Well, I will leave one. If you want, I'll tell you one. Okay. I was leading a group um, a couple of years ago, um, and everybody was going into the meditation part of the group. And I was just holding the energy, as I always do for a group when I'm facilitating. And for some reason, I then went off, and Jesus appeared to me in this, um, and I don't know why on that night, as opposed to any other time. And he showed me a period that we would endure as individuals on this planet that would go dark and that solar winds would be uh, prevalent. And I didn't even know anything like solar winds existed. It was not in, I'm not a super science person, um, so I didn't know that solar winds were real. But he told me that the solar winds would come fast and furious, but they would be a matter of days and not weeks. You know, so it would be a very quick event. Mm-hmm. And then we would move into the new world. Hmm. Well, that's uh, inter- it, it, well, uh, detailed and at the same time vague, um, really uh, in- provocative. I think that's a good way to describe it. Well, we are going into solar max, as far as I understand, next year. And I do. there is something called solar wind, so there is some science to this. I'm going to have to never, Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. So I don't know, but I think I survived it. So. <laughs> Well, Gloria, I, I apologize that we're running out of time here. Uh, we have about two minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about your tour, um, which sure. is coming up, and if you still have places on the tour for other people? We do. We we are, you know, filling up. But we do have some room left, um, but we are filling up. So people need to contact me, and they can find that out on the website. We're going to stay in the Languedoc region so that we're not traveling all over and, you know, just rushing from one place to the next. We're going to stay in the Rennes-le-Chateau area so that we can really walk the land, walk the earth, uh, be there, drink the local water, which is pristine, and go to the different mountains, the different um, rivers, um, all sacred, all with legend, and yet spend time in the hilltop village of Rennes looking at what the priest Saunier was actually doing, what kind of truth was he preserving, and Ben's going to take us through how he got into the head of Saunier and found his clues. And then we're going to walk to these areas, which Henry Lincoln, and I'm sure we'll see Henry up in the garden there, but you know that is a living, breathing, organic temple on the earth there that has real formations that you can only see from above. So who the heck constructed this place? Right. And, and, you know, I mean, it really begs the question of some really interesting layers of history way before even the Druids. 
and there is such a history in the area, the Roman baths and so forth. So we're going to go all around. We're going to spend a lot of time walking connected to the earth, you know, sitting in a very powerful seat of Isis with ley lines going through it and going into the source of the Magdalene and, you know, the, the river we have to cross to get there and, you know, climbing in mountainous areas and spending a lot of time in Wren and seeing different local um stained glass windows and heretical symbols and and paintings which show you that the artist knew that Mary Magdalene was the the wife of Jesus and Tim Wallace Murphy will join us and he's going to give us some real good info on uh, the Rex Deus lineage so it's going to be a combination of a lot of things oh it sounds incredible um so when is it it's September 19th to the 25th, so we're going to do seven days in the Languedoc, and we are going to do a special ceremony for the autumn equinox full moon, uh, which is really stunning there. And um, we're going to walk the land and see what this temple of antiquity is that still exists in the earth in such a beautiful place, and why the ancients kept going there over and over and over again, Jesus and Mary Magdalene being really just one layer of history. Okay. Well, um, that was our uh, 90-second warning about 10 seconds ago. So um, let me close by, uh, I guess the best thing for me to do is to give your website, again, uh, Gloria, uh, com. That's A-M-E-N-D-O-L-A. And, Gloria, let me just say this has been wonderful. I wish I'd had you on for the whole show, and maybe, you know, maybe we'll have you come back. And, oh, I'd love uh, to. It was really nice. Thank you so much. Well, I, I've really enjoyed this. This is one of the subjects um, that really still, you know, lights my fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I know that feeling. So, so the best of luck to you with the tour and the books and everything else you're doing. And seriously, let's stay in touch, and I'd okay. love to get in touch with the Bloodline people. I'll put and, you in touch uh, with them, yep. Okay, and we'll have them on the show as well. Okay, well, very good. Well, Gloria, thank you so much. And again, listeners, uh, Gloria Amendola's website is uh, www.gloriaamendola.com. Thank you well, so much, I, I've never cut it this close before. <laughs> All right. Well, good night, Gloria, and thank you. Mm-hmm. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in with us again this Wednesday, and uh, please come back again uh, next Wednesday night. Good night. Progressive brings you Flowetry with Flow. Ring around the rosy. The rosy. In this case, being your car and home insurance bundled together to save you money. Oh, so cozy. Ashes. Ashes. The mic falls down. Bundle home and auto and save with Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Fios is not cable. We're wired differently, which means you can get the fastest Internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to Files today to get our best offer ever. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.